You know, church, that is, it is so true. But just because something is so true doesn't necessarily mean that we fully have embraced that to be our truth. Do you really believe that you are who God says you are? Or when you look in the mirror yourself, do you see every fault and flaw, every difficulty, every struggle? Do you see every work of the past? Do you see everything that the enemy has brought against you? Do you see every failure in every place that you've walked in sin? Do you see all of that? Or do you choose to believe this truth? that I am who God says I am. I am who he says I am. So many of us, with the things of our past and the things that we've been through, God, they, they're, they're used in our own life to help to define what we can't do, to define what I won't do, to define what I shouldn't do, because, well, what can God bring out of a life like that? And I want to press into this today as we continue in this investigation of the gospel of Luke or, or Luke's investigation into Jesus. And Luke is investigating this, this God-man, Jesus, the Christ, the man who is God. And that's what Luke is investigating. Is he really who, who he, the Bible says he is? Is he really what everyone says? Let's investigate this. Are you willing to look at truth? Because this is what Luke is doing here. And if you got your Bible, open up. Our, the, we're going to move into the next uh, portion of Scripture. We're going to start breaking down verses 26 through 38. And we're going to start going through that. If you want to open up your app, it's on the app. And we'll put it up here for you as well. We're going to go through uh, 20, verses 26 through 33 and begin to kind of break this down to see what it is that God wants to say to us. Starting in verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to the city of Galilee, to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will rule over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom of his kingdom there will be no end. Amen? Come on, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word is a lamp. It is a light unto our path. And I thank you for leading us today and guiding us into the truth that you have declared. Lord, we thank you for your word. I thank you, Lord, that you sent your word. And as your word goes forth, Lord, you declared that not one would fall to the ground idle. So do what only you can, Lord. Begin to move in our hearts, move in our minds, move in our spirit today to help us to receive what it is that you, Lord, not Pastor Mark, but what you, Lord, have to say to us today. In Jesus' name, amen? amen. Now, Mary, you know, um, 
we'll talk a little bit more about her. Mary kind of, I think in some respects, gets a, a bit of a bad rap when really the honest th- the truth is that Mary is one of the most significant, important women in all of history. In fact, Mary's story does not start in Luke chapter 1. Mary's story begins with the first woman. The first woman, you know, Eve, way back in Genesis chapter 3. God begins to tell us about this woman. The first woman we know, her name was Eve, right? Eve was in the garden. God made creation. He made all that is. And then he created Adam and he created Eve. And he made them in his image and likeness. He gave them, when he breathed life unto them, he gave them dignity, he gave them value, he gave them worth, and then put them into the garden and entrusted them with everything that God made. He gave them stewardship over the entirety of God's creation. And he allowed them, he allowed them to enjoy life. He allowed them to enjoy freedom. He allowed them to enjoy the creation that God had made for them. He allowed them to walk in the garden. But he told them this one thing that he forbid them to do. God said, one thing that I forbid you to do, do not eat of that one tree. Everything else is yours, but that one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, don't eat of that. So what did they do? Yep. Our first parents disobeyed. They sinned against God. It was not a sin against others. It was a sin, and it was a sin against God. And God, rather than leaving them in death, headed for hell, he comes to them in Genesis chapter 3, and God comes to Adam and Eve in their sin, and he begins to pursue after them. Where are you? Just like in your sin, he pursues after you. In their sinfulness, he speaks to them just like he speaks to you. And in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, Genesis 3.15 is called the the proto-evangelion. The proto-evangelion. Proto meaning first, evangelion is gospel. This is the first gospel. I mean, how many of you knew that the gospel began back in Genesis chapter 3? Genesis chapter 3, God shows up after this whole discourse between the enemy, between the the serpent and between Adam and Eve, and God shows up and he begins to speak to them. And the one thing that he does in that moment is he puts the enemy in his place. He puts Satan in his place. And God says this to the serpent. In verse 15, he says, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So they're in their sin, and what does God say? Again, not only is this the first gospel, but this is also the first place in which, again, I believe with all my heart that God is alluding to, or he's telling us about the virgin birth, that this son would come through the woman, not through a man. And so there's sin, and he comes into this, and what does God say the answer to that sin is? What does God say the answer to that rebellion is? What does God say the answer to the separation that would now come between man and God? What does God say the answer is? He says that the answer is a son, and the son that would come through the line of this woman, Eve. 
And that this son would enter into a battle. The son would battle against the dragon, against the serpent, against Satan. And that the son would be wounded in that battle. But that Satan, the enemy, would be completely defeated. And from that point forward, from Genesis chapter 3, all of humanity, all of God's people, all of time has begun to look anticipating the birth of this son, the one in whom would come through the line of this woman Eve. Where is this son? People have been watching and waiting for Thousands of years. Where is the son? When will the son be born? How do we know? Can't you imagine knowing that there's going to be a son that will be born through this woman, the line of this woman, but when? Where is he? And how will we know? Has he been born yet? Imagine walking around during that time just looking at, at, at every, every little boy out there. Are you him? Are you the one? Who is it that will come? When is the one that coming that will come to conquer sin and conquer death, conquer hell, conquer the grave? When will our Savior come? When is the Redeemer coming? When is the Restorer coming? When is our Deliverer coming? And that must have been the question that so many over time continually were asking themselves. And then, I don't know, hundreds, even thousands of years later, I don't, I don't know exactly, I, I looked, I couldn't tell exactly how much time had gone forth. History begins to proceed forward, and what God does in the, in the, the future of Genesis chapter 3 is he sends and raises up a prophet. And he raises up a prophet named Elijah. And 700 years before the birth of Jesus Christ, Elijah, or I'm sorry, Isaiah, not Elijah, Isaiah, Isaiah begins to prophesy about this son that was talked about in Genesis chapter 3. And so he begins to reveal a little more revelation about who this male child will be. And so in Isaiah's prophecy, in chapter 7, verse 14, Isaiah says this. The Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, who's going to give the sign? The Lord himself. You know what he's telling us right there is that the Lord's going to do this. This is going to be something that no man can do. This is not going to be something that can be recreated. This is going to be something that you will know absolutely, definitely, there is no way that this is man-made, that this is something only God could do. This is that the Lord himself will give you a sign. You know what? When the Lord himself gives you a sign, you need to know that you're not going to miss it. And he says, this will be the sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. So he's saying, you're not going to miss this. Why? Listen, it's not every day, and it's not even very often that a virgin has a baby. No, it has never happened in all of history. It'll never happen again. There's only been one virgin birth. And God says, you're going to know it. And you're not going to miss this. You can't miss it. You will not miss it. It's not going to be missed because the birth of the son, the one I talked about in Genesis chapter 3 in verse 15 in the Proto-Evangelion, the gospel I began in Genesis chapter 3, and now I'm going to prophesy this through the prophet Isaiah. And he says this. He says, you're not going to miss this because the son that I talked about is going to be born through a virgin. Amen? Amen. And the son that was born from the virgin, 
His name will be Emmanuel, which means what? God is with us. God is with us. In church, there's, there's a lot of religions today that base much of their theology off of really what is, was the, the thing that led Adam and Eve into trying that fruit in the first place. It was the lie of the enemy that came and tried to tell us that we can become God. That we can become part of the divine. There's a lot of things that are taught in that, but that's not what God is teaching us here. God is not saying that we become like him. God is saying that he humbles himself to the place where God came to be like us. He came to become one of us. Not that we could become like him. And so all through history, there's been this expectation of this son, the son that will be born. When will the son be born? He will be born of a virgin. When will this virgin have a child? And when will this all happen? And all of those questions lead us to Luke chapter one in verse 26. And I want you to know, church, that again, these things have been shown to be true. The son was born and he was the one who came, the son, he came to crush Satan. He came to forgive our sins. He came to deliver people. And the one who came to crush, to forgive, and to deliver, he came through a virgin. He was born of the virgin mother, Mary. And Jesus, the one, the son that came, born of a virgin, lived without sin. He never sinned. He died in our place for our sin. He became our substitute, fulfilling every temple ministry in the old covenant. He became the fulfillment of what the temple did. He shed his blood. He gave his blood. He gave himself in our place for our sin. And not only did he give himself in death on the cross, buried in the grave, but he arose from that grave. He defeated it all. And three days later, he arose and he ascended to this place where he was resurrected and he evidenced himself by witness after witness after witness that gave testimony about the fact that they saw the living God. And the news of this Jesus, the one who came out of the grave and then eventually ascended to heaven, began to spread about. And it began to become big news to all of those people, first in a little group of Jewish disciples. And then it began to spread to a bigger group of Jewish people. And it began to spread to a bigger group where it began to extend itself. The news was getting out now to the Gentiles. And it was beginning to spread to those who were even not of Jewish descent. And they all started to hear about this Jesus. They began to hear about this King, the Lord, God, our Savior, Jesus, the Christ. And word got out to a Gentile named Theophilus. Theophilus heard about what was going on. Theophilus, we, again, we studied that early in the, in the book of Luke. We learned about him that he more than likely was an affluent, wealthy, successful, political guy. He heard about Jesus and he was trying to make a decision as to whether he would or wouldn't wholeheartedly become a follower of Jesus, whether he would be fully devoted to Jesus Christ and he would become a follower of Jesus. He didn't want to devote his life because of the cost that it would bring. It was going to cost him a lot. It was going to cost him in his political career. It was going to cost him in his in his. Is all of his life it was going to be turned upside down. And so he didn't want to go through all of that without first investigating the facts. So he would have set aside what would have been a large sum of money is what it would have taken. And he hires an affluent, articulate 
medical doctor named Luke, who just happened to be a very gifted historian as well. Theophilus, why, you know, why would he pick Luke? Well, part of the reason I'm sure that he picked Luke because Luke was also a Gentile. Theophilus, a Gentile, he wanted to hire a Gentile because Theophilus, I'm sure, thought that likely Luke didn't grow up reading the Old Testament. He wasn't watching for the Messiah. He wasn't waiting for the Messiah. So he would be able to give him a very objective view of what it was that the facts led him to. And not only that, just, just in thinking about that, who better... Who better to go out and to investigate the virgin birth, the miracles of healing, the Jesus who rose from the dead, than a medical doctor? Which, lo and behold, Luke just happened to be. So Theophilus hires Luke to go and to do this detailed investigation of Jesus, which again, we talked about past, that would have included in an investigation that would have included him going to meet with the eyewitnesses, talking to the people who saw the different events. It would have meant him going out to talk to those who were in charge of the oral tradition in that day. It would have meant him beginning to read and to dissect and go through the gospels of Matthew and Mark that had already been written at this time. It would have meant him going and finding every written account he can of all the different things that were said, all the things that that were written and taking all of that information, pulling it all together into one place. And then he was therefore called to write this orderly, historical, truthful, factual, accurate account of who Jesus is, what he said, what he did. And Luke spends years going through all of this, doing this life, this, this investigation of the life of Jesus. And after Luke is done with this investigation... Luke, he writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he writes the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. He writes about the life of Jesus and the life of the church, the prequel and the sequel. And I tell you all of that because today, listen, when you learn about Mary today, when we talk about her and we learn about her, you need to know that Luke would have actually sat down and talked to her. That Luke would have gone to Nazareth if that's where she was living at that point. He would have gone wherever it was that she was living and she would have sat down together and he would have interviewed her. And, and again, at this point in which Luke is interviewing her, she wasn't the young mother Mary at that point. She was probably... the old grandma Mary at that point. Because more than likely, if you just add it all together, she was probably somewhere around 70 years old when Luke is doing this investigation. So imagine this, this woman, this older woman Mary, sitting down with Luke. And she just telling him the stories. Just telling him all about all the things that happened from the very beginning, sharing all the things that went on. Maybe the interview took days where they sit down and, and he's just asking her question after question. Mary, tell me the story. Tell me about this. Tell me what Jesus said. Tell me what Jesus did. What, who was there that day? What happened and how were people affected? Was there any doctors that were there during that miracle? Was there anything that happened that we could collaborate? What? Tell me about this. Tell me. About, and he was going through because that's what an investigator does when he begins to to check out a story. 
And so he's going through all of this stuff. Luke's going through all these things. And again, we, we talked about all that stuff as we led up to this point. And this is where all of the research, everything that Luke has been doing, it brings us to this place. And we see again the angel Gabriel. And he writes in Luke chapter one in verse 26. He says this. All the research, talking to Mary, and he says this. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God. Now, we met Gabriel earlier in the story. Mary, Mary is, just a little bit of background, Mary is a, has a relative, and Mary's relative is Elizabeth. Elizabeth is an elderly, barren woman, and she is married to the priest Zechariah. And we see in the temple where the angel Gabriel came to Zechariah in the temple... And he's not, he's just, he moved over just a couple of feet from the Holy of Holies in the presence of God. He comes from the presence of God. He steps into the holy place where Zechariah was the priest and he begins to speak to him. And he tells, the angel tells Gabriel, or tells, angel Gabriel tells Zechariah that you, Zechariah, your, your barren wife, your elderly wife, she's going to have a baby. And it's going to be a boy. And your prayers have been answered. And I want you to name this boy John which means God is gracious. And now, they're in the sixth month of this pregnancy. And Mary, at this point, has no idea that Elizabeth is, is even pregnant at this point because Elizabeth, the Bible tells us, all she did when she, after she consummated, after she had this baby, she conceived and she went home. She locked herself up. Elizabeth went home, greatly blessed. She was, she was double blessed. I mean, this elderly woman who had been cursed for so long without a child has now been blessed. Not only was she blessed with a baby, but her husband was still mute. <laughs> she didn't tell anybody, though. She didn't say anything. She just worshiped God and just getting ready, preparing things so that she could be a mama. Praise God. And so Mary, she's unaware of all of this until the angel Gabriel comes and comes to Mary. He shows up to her and brings her good news. Now, the angel Gabriel had showed up in the temple earlier, but Zechariah wasn't able to even tell anybody about it. And now we see the second time, and again, God hadn't spoken for 400 years since the end of Malachi. And now here he comes. And where does he show up? In verse 26, it says he shows up in Nazareth. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. Now, if you do a little research on Nazareth, You'll find out that today there's probably 100,000 or so people there, but it was not a city of that size at all at that time. That city, they, during that day, when you look at when, when, when Mary and Joseph were there in Nazareth, it was a little town. Honestly, it was a nowhere town. It was one of those places that was nowhere. It's mentioned here in Luke, and we've heard about it and heard about it, and so we think it to be a pretty important place. But the truth is, is that in that time, it was not a very important place. In fact, it had never even, it's never even mentioned in the Old Testament. It's never, Nazareth is never mentioned in any of the old uh, ancient scriptures or ancient texts or ancient textual writers. It was never even mentioned. It was nowhere. That's what Nazareth was. And Jesus, in that day, 
This town, most of the little towns like Nazareth were towns where historically there was 50 to maybe 100 people that populated these little tiny towns. Nazareth was situated between two major cities. And so uh, when people traveled from one city to another, Nazareth was the town that everybody traveled through, but nobody made Nazareth their destination because it was nowhere. How many of you have been out on the road driving and you uh, drove through a city and you didn't realize you needed gas and you got out in the middle of nowhere and the only place you had to stop was this little tiny gas station in the middle of nowhere where the price of gas was twice that what it was there back at the city? But you stop because you got to get gas and you got to go to the bathroom. And so you fill up and you go in and the bathroom is disgusting. The people are looking at you literally weird and you feel this uncomfortable vibe. It's like, man, this is just a creepy place. Let's get out of here as quick as we can. You drive away and, and you're like, thank you, God, that I did not have to live in a place like that. That's Nazareth. That's what Nazareth was. Nazareth was a little tiny farming community, probably one well. In fact, probably the one well where maybe it was that these two kids, Joseph and Mary, met. The homes in that day, they've excavated and found that most of the homes in that day were 500, 600 square feet. They're the size of a hotel room. They had no plumbing. They had no indoor electricity. There were no bathrooms in that day. There was no, no heat. They would start an open fire. These, most of them in those little tiny houses, they, their animals, their farm animals stayed in there with them. The, these were simple people. <laughs> and in these little communities, most were illiterate. Most people in those days couldn't read. In church, and the angel Gabriel shows up where? The angel Gabriel shows up in Nazareth. In Nazareth. Nathaniel said, can any good thing come from Nazareth? That was a rhetorical question. It wasn't really something he wanted to know. They knew, no, nothing good comes from Nazareth. Except God. How many of you have fallen into this place in your life where you think nothing good can come from me except God and the angel shows up here in Nazareth and this is where he introduces us to this little this couple the angel Gabriel he comes to Nazareth and in verse 27 it says he comes to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. So here we are, we finally meet Mary and Joseph. Now, historically speaking, there has been a lot of things that have been written about them. If you search that and begin to read, there's a lot of different things that have been said about Mary and Joseph. To be honest, most of us associate Mary and Joseph simply with Christmas, and we know them because they're figures that are a part of our nativity, and we just put them in the middle of the nativity, and that's who they are. But who are they? What's the real story behind them? I mean, who was Joseph? There's a lot of different speculations about Joseph. 
And I'll, I'll tell you just again, from research, I, we don't know a lot about him. There's not a lot that's said. We don't know a lot of things. I believe this, though, and I believe it because of the tradition of the day. I believe that Joseph was a young man, that he was a kid. I believe he was probably a teenager because in that day, tradition was that a a young man would get married between the ages of 12 and 16. I know, 12 and 16. We know he was poor. He was a simple carpenter in a tiny little town. He lived in Nazareth, a little town that was in the middle of nowhere. It was a nowhere place to be from. And his only call to fame was that some 13 generations earlier, he comes from the very distant line of David. And I want you to think of a boy, a boy who is probably a junior high age or early high school age kid. Gets up every morning, looking in the mirror, just hoping there's a little whisker of beard there. <laughs> See, and, and that's the guy who gets to marry Mary. That's the guy who God says is going to raise the Messiah. That's who God says he's going to give him this son, and this son that he's going to take care of is going to be the Savior of the world. And he's just barely through puberty. But he's a good man. He's a hardworking man. He's a carpenter working a simple job. And I can only imagine, and again, this is me just romanticizing a little bit here, but I believe he's this young man who just desires and has this desire to marry the woman of his dreams. And he meets this woman, he meets Mary, probably when they were young. Because again, in a town of 50 to 100 people, it's not like the marrying options are really broad. Amen? I mean, there couldn't have been a lot of people that could have been an option at that time. But he's a hard worker, he's a carpenter, and he's working, trying to save up his money to marry the woman of his dreams. And I find it amazing that God in his providence brings them together. But I've been doing a lot of thinking and a lot of praying. And and, and my question is this. In Genesis chapter 3, did God already know in Genesis chapter 3 by his hand of sovereignty that God had prepared a Mary and Joseph that would be ready to be able to be unveiled in Luke chapter 1? Did God already know them? Or... In God's providence, in God's sovereignty, did God, does God in all of his grace know that it didn't matter who they were at that moment, that God was able to take all things, even what the enemy meant for evil, and to turn it about and use it for his good, use it for his glory. It didn't matter because God knew that he would be able to bring together a Mary and a Joseph for just such a time as that. I don't know. But I do know that in his providence, he brought them together. And, which might have even been a bigger miracle, their parents approved of it. This young man, Joseph, wanting to fulfill the dream that he had of Marrying this girl that probably he met. Listen, if they were getting married between the ages of 12 and 16, they probably met at the ripe old age of six or eight. (laughs) But I just like to think, "Ah, I bet that, you know what, he met this little girl and that was the dream of his life. I guess I'm gonna marry that girl one day. 
Because again, you, when you read through this whole thing, it is that kind of love story. I know I am adding some of the embellishments of it. But when you read this thing, you see a love story between these two. And that's Joseph. What about Mary? We, we read in there that Mary was betrothed. And we hear that word betrothed and we really don't, don't know a whole lot about that. It doesn't make a lot of sense to us because we do marriage very differently in our culture. Very differently. Not, not necessarily better, but certainly different. Betrothal, what that, what that was, was betrothal was the pledge to be married. And a girl could be betrothed as early as 12 years of age. And again, that was just the culture that they were in. And she would be betrothed, and the betrothal would last for what would be probably usually about a year long. And the betrothal would begin with a simple ceremony. The parents would be heavily involved. The parents would be very invested. The parents would give their approval. The parents were the ones that had to say, we believe this is of God. It is his will. And I think it's a good idea that the two of you enter into this betrothal so that you two can be married. And they would call the priest and the priest would come and he would declare some scripture over them. And then he would pray this prayer of betrothal. And then if they were from a family that had any kind of any kind of affluence, they would have a betrothal party. I don't believe this couple had a betrothal party. They were a poor couple. And again, I, I say that because if you move forward into Luke chapter 2, when Jesus is born, Mary and Joseph take this firstborn baby into the temple to make sacrifice, which was required by the law for them to make. And they took this firstborn. Well, traditionally, the firstborn son, the traditional sacrifice that was to be taken into the temple was a lamb. But lambs were pretty expensive. And so in Leviticus, they made concession for that, for people that were poor. And so for the poor, the exception was that in place of a lamb, they could bring what was the, the offering of the poor. That's what it was called. And so instead of a lamb, they could bring two turtle doves. And if you look, you'll see that that is the offering that, G that Joseph and Mary brought for Jesus. Now again, this is a totally different sermon, but I just to place this in your mind to think about a little bit, isn't it ironic that Jesus' parents, mother, his mom, Mary, and, and, and Joseph, they could not come up with a lamb to be sacrificed for the lamb of God. Instead, it was two turtle doves, the offering of the poor, was given as a sacrifice for the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Again, whole nother sermon. This was a poor young couple from a poor town, poor parents, but they were betrothed. And this was something that would have been exciting. They were planning a wedding. How many of you ever planned a wedding? <laughs> Look, at most people are like, I don't even want to admit it. <laughs> It's the most exciting, worst experience of our lives. <laughs> planning a wedding. Well, that's what they're doing. They're planning a wedding here. And whether you're having a good time or a bad time, it's all consuming. It's all you can think about. 
And, and traditionally, again, what would happen at the end of a betrothal? At the end of a betrothal, the couple, they, they would be betrothed. And, and listen, okay, when they were betrothed, they did not live together. They did not sleep together. They did not consummate their covenant together. Am I being plain enough? <laughs> I know those are all biblical words, but you know what it means, right? No, what would happen is that they would go through that time of betrothal, and then at the end of the betrothal, they would have a ceremony, a wedding ceremony would be held. And then they would come together. That's when they would begin to live as husband and wife, together under the same roof. And that's when they would consummate this relationship. And this couple was getting close. This is where they were. They were at this point of betrothal. They were getting close. It was getting exciting. They were, they were betrothed. And you know, betrothal was so serious that Matthew's gospel tells us that it required a certificate of divorce just to break a betrothal. And that's where this couple was. Now, a few other just things about Mary, which again, I, I find important for us in understanding one is that she probably, Mary was very likely illiterate. Again, simply because most people in that time were not formally educated. Most people in that time, especially in these small communities, women had a really difficult time being educated. And in these little communities, it was almost always that they were illiterate. And so Mary's connection with God would have been remembering the scriptures that she'd heard in the synagogue remembering the scriptures that were there, remembering, and I believe that Mary loved to sing the scriptures because we find, and we'll study in a little bit, Mary's song. Mary sang the scriptures and she prayed these scriptures and Mary let all these things were a part of her. But I tell you, man, when it comes to Mary, I think that the, the Catholics kind of cornered the market on her. I grew up Catholic, so I can tell you, man, my, my opinions and my thoughts and my impressions were totally different than what they are today. The picture that I had of Mary growing up, I just don't find that it's a very accurate picture. Most of the pictures that I had of Mary when I was growing up were pictures like this. Or, or maybe like this. You know, uh, <clears throat> Mary wasn't 20-something which these pictures make us think that Mary was, you know, 20s, maybe early 30s. She wasn't, she, Mary wasn't wearing a crown. Mary didn't have embroidered clothing. Mary didn't sit on a golden throne with a golden crown on her head. She wasn't holding a baby that had a crown in pure white clothing. These were, these were poor people. They didn't have golden halos that, oh. And to be quite honest, I think that our picture of Mary and much of what we talk about, much of the way that we feel about Mary has been hijacked by Catholic art, by the Catholic Church. And I don't believe, it's not accurate. When we think of Mary, biblically, Mary was a peasant girl. Mary was wearing tattered peasant's clothing. She was a poor girl from a poor town. And she was maybe, and when you see Mary or think of Mary, think of a little girl out there pulling water up out of a well or searching for firewood to keep her home warm. Think of her with dirty feet wearing sandals that were worn out, walking on these dirty, dung-filled roads. Think of Mary as an illiterate. 
I don't believe Mary's sitting on a golden throne. I believe she was sitting on a homemade stool by a fire that was started by her own hands. Mary was a teenager. Again, I, I, in reading, almost all of the theologians that I read believe that Mary was 12, 13, or 14 years old. Let that sink in. How many of you have 12, 13, or 14-year-olds? You won't even trust them with an iPad. <laughs> Let alone God. You got a 12, 13, 14-year-olds. Can you imagine taking and saying, here, we're going to put eternal life in your hands. The destiny of forever. Here you go. How many of you at 14 would have said, oh, man, I'd be so, I'm so, I'd be so well equipped to take care of God? You know, the truth is this. With airbags and seatbelts, we still won't even give them a driver's license because we fear for their lives. And what does God do? God comes to this junior high-aged girl. That's the age that Mary was when Gabriel came to her and said, Mary, you're going to give birth to God. I think it should change our view of her a little bit. Because again, she was never intended to be worshipped. The intent was that she would worship the one who came through her. The angel Gabriel, he comes to this junior high-aged girl. She's, plan she's planning a wedding. God hasn't spoken in 400 years. And this angel shows up, and this is what he says to this junior high-aged girl. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him or give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom there will be no end said the angel Gabriel to the illiterate junior high-aged girl living in a nowhere hick town called Nazareth. And then the scripture says something that we, I'm sure, all find shocking. It says that she was startled. <laughs> uh, yeah, I can imagine she was very startled. And then in verse 30 it says... Mary, don't be afraid. You have found favor with God. You found favor with him. The angel Gabriel shows up to make this great announcement. The angel Gabriel shows up in the town of Nazareth to this little illiterate girl, and he shows up and says, Mary, God has favored you. He has chosen you. He's looked over all the earth, and you, Mary, you have received the favor of God. And can't you imagine him going, Mary, Remember when you were in the synagogue? Remember when the priest pulled out the scrolls of Isaiah? And remember when he started to read? And remember, Mary, when he said that there was going to be a Savior and the Savior was going to be born and he was going to be born of a virgin? Mary, you're that virgin. You're the one. 
know what that word favor really means? It's really another word for grace. It's just another word for grace. It's God's undeserved favor, his unmerited love that he poured out on her. This word, favor, describes for you and for me. It describes how we're saved. It describes how we're loved. It describes how we're embraced by God. We are, we are loved, we are saved, we are embraced by God, by the favor of God, the grace of God. But I want you to know, church, that though the grace of God is free, that God gives us that grace in finding salvation, I want you to know that the grace of God has a cost attached to it. Because the, the truth is this, that the grace that does not change my life will not save my life. And the grace that God gives that saves our life is the same grace that will continue to work at changing your life. Because God loves you so much to freely bring you in, to give you the gift of eternal life, but he loves you too much to leave you that way. So the grace of God comes into our life. Mary, she was saved by grace. Mary, she received from God grace. But I want you to know that Mary receiving the grace of God, there was a cost attached to that. Mary received grace. Mary would be the, the mother, the virgin mother of Emmanuel, God with us. But Mary had to live in that grace as well. And that grace meant that she had to go tell all of her friends, hey, guess what? I'm pregnant. Never been with anybody, but I'm pregnant. Imagine having to know all of these things that Mary, the Bible says, hid in her heart. You know what? Grace will cost you. Grace may cost you some friends. Grace may cost you a little ridicule. Grace may cost you some persecution. But this is true to everybody who becomes a Christian. We are chosen by God to receive his grace. It is his gift to you and to me. And that means that God's favor is upon us. And when God puts his favor upon us, it means that that favor, that grace is going to begin to change our life, begin to change our heart, begin to change our souls. For me, when I became a Christian, the grace of God came in a moment to bring salvation. God took me out of my place, my destiny towards hell, and he turned me about and gave me eternal life. It was in a moment that the grace of God came in my life, and I knew that I was in that moment favored of God. But I want you to know that in that moment, that free gift of grace has not left me. In fact, it's continued to provoke me and to, to, to promote me. Because in that moment in my life, all of a sudden, the old man was gone and the new man had come. And I had to figure out who this new man was. How do I walk after him? Because I'm used to doing everything that the old man wanted to do. How do I do what the new man wants me to do? And the grace of God was there with me every step of the way. God took everything that used to be good and made it better. God took everything that used to be evil and made it, or those things that were good and made them evil. God took those things that I used to think were evil and made them good. God took and turned my world upside down in a moment. It was the grace of God that did that. And it's only the grace of God that gives me the opportunity to walk out that call of God, to walk out that change, the transforming power of God. It's His grace. It's His grace. You know, church, if you're a Christian, he has given you that grace. He has poured his favor out upon you. He has set you apart. And that grace 
will continue to operate in you to bring change and transformation. It is only by grace that we are saved, not by works that any man could boast, but the grace that's powerful enough to save you is the grace that will continue to transform you. And I want to tell you this. You don't deserve it. I don't deserve it. Please, I don't deserve anything that God's done in my life. And so the question comes up that I'm sure that many of you have asked. Well, God, why did you choose Mary? Why her? These are thoughts that I've been going through and really pondering and praying over. God, why Mary? And I know that a lot of religions will tell you different things, but I want you to know today, listen, God chose Mary not because she was so good. God chose Mary because he is so good. God doesn't choose you because you're so good. And he doesn't reject you because you're so bad. Because you know what? When we come to him, it's all about him. It's about how good he is. And there is honestly nothing beyond that. That's why. God could have, listen, did God have to pick Mary? No, he could have picked an affluent, successful, highly motivated, highly visible woman. He could have done that. God could have picked somebody that would have been uh, significant. God could have have picked a beautiful town for him to be from. He could have put him into a town that, yes, this is where kings come from. He could have picked a palace for Jesus to be born in. He could have been raised by kings. He could have been raised in affluence and wealth and prominence and significance and had the best education. He could have traveled the world. He could have had the best education so that he could have learned everything there was to learn about the world he created. He could have been put in a place of great significance and great wealth so he could travel the world that he created. But instead... Come on, listen, okay? I'm gonna finish up here. He came instead to an insignificant little town. A town that was nowhere, in the middle of nowhere. And he came to an, honestly, to an insignificant little junior high-aged girl. And he says, Mary, I choose you. And when God places his favor, God places his grace on someone. He makes them significant. Mary is significant because of the grace of God. Nazareth is significant today only because of the grace of God that showed up there. And I want you to know that no matter what your life looks like and no matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, let me have the worship team come on up. No matter what it is that's happened in your life, no matter how insignificant you may feel or how bad you think you've blown it, no matter how much you've done, no matter how much you have not done, I want you to know that God in his grace can bring significance no matter what that past looks like. Church, this is one of the reasons why we, this is why one of the, this is why we hate religion. 
Honestly, religion tries to tell us how good we have to be, how much we have to do to earn God's favor. And we can never do it. I mean, if God's chosen people, the Jewish people couldn't do it, what makes us think that today we can? We can't earn the favor of God. Christianity is all about God favoring us by grace, by something we don't deserve. Because we serve a God, listen church, we serve a God who takes nobodies from nowhere and gives them love. He takes nobodies from nowhere and gives them purpose and gives them significance and gives them destiny. God takes nobodies from nowhere and he makes them a masterpiece and creates a future and a hope for them. Our God is a God who takes nobodies from nowhere and fills them with the peace of God that transcends all understanding. Our God is the God who takes nobodies from nowhere and fills them with the joy and fills them with the power and fills them with the grace that only he could do. Our God is the God who takes nobodies from nowhere and pours out a grace into their life when they could begin to do and begin to respond where nobody expected nor nobody ever imagined they could do. Mary and Joseph never imagined what the grace of God could do in their life. And neither have you begun to dream or even imagine what the grace of God has planned to do in your life. Because the saving grace of God is the power of God to bring the transformation to help you walk into the fullness of the call of God. And we have got to become a people who stop looking at all of the things that we can't do and all of the things of the path. If Mary would have looked at all of that, her response would have been different. We'll we'll learn about that next week. What's your response to God? Mary said, or the angel said to Mary in verse 31, you're going to bear a son and you're going to call his name Jesus. He was the fulfillment. This was God with us. And that name Jesus means Savior. God saves me from my sin. Mary was never intended to be worshipped. Mary was a vessel through which God brought the one that was to be worshipped. Think about it. Mary's son would become her savior because even Mary needed the savior. Her son would be her savior. Her son must be your Savior. Because the scriptures tell us, in no other name but the name of Jesus, in no other name will salvation be found. The Bible says that no man comes to the Father except by me. Those are Jesus' words. Will you bow your heads with me? Lord, in the name of Jesus Christ, we come and we thank you, God, that you are gracious and good, that, Lord, you have poured out your grace, that your favor is upon us, and that each one that's here today, Lord, they're not here by accident, they're not even here by their will, they're here, Lord, by your will, they're here because you wanted them to hear what it is that you had to say. God, let these not be the words of Mark, but let these be, Father, the gracious words of the Savior that would be spoken to each one of us, God Almighty, speaking into our hearts. Holy Spirit, have your way. 
And if you're apart from him today, if you do not know salvation, if you do not know the Savior, if you have not come to that place of realizing the forgiveness of your sins that only Jesus can provide, only God can forgive sin. It's because our sin is against him. And Jesus said, I forgive you. His desire is to forgive those who would call out. And if you're apart from him right now, just repent. Say, God, I'm a sinner and I need you. I have tried and tried and tried. I cannot get past this and I need you in my life. I need you to come and take away this guilt and this condemnation and forgive me from my past. I gotta stop looking back at all those things that I'm not, all those things that I did to see, Lord God, that you have a hope and a future for me. Because if God could move into a little girl like Mary's life and bring forth the birth of the Savior, let me ask you, what can't he come into your life and birth out of your life? When he loves you. If you just call upon his name today and say, Jesus, come into my life, I need you. Be willing to tell somebody about that decision. But I'm sure there's others who have begun to use, have, have continued to use your past as a reason why God can't move in your future. You've limited yourself by yourself. And God says, don't. My grace is sufficient for you. plan for you.
church, I love you. I pray that God blesses you, that God continues to walk before you, filling you with his grace and mercy. So church is not about to be over. Church is about to begin. So go be the church. Go be the light of God. Go be that prophetic voice. Go be the hands of God that will minister to the needs of those he's called you to. Church, go be the church. Amen? God bless you. Don't forget, become part of a life group. Go on out and be a part and do life together. Come on, let's sing it as we go.